How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Ready to praise God this morning? <laughs> awesome. We got some announcements. If you got a minute here, uh, feel free to have a seat for a minute. I'll ask you to stand in a bit. Um, but for now, just as we get going this morning, um, uh, here's a few things to just know about what's going to be going on this upcoming couple of weeks uh, or so. So Awana signups is the 13th. That's this Wednesday. If you want to have your kid in Awanas up to fifth grade, then then uh, you can do that. The sign-up time is going to be on Wednesday for starting at 6 o'clock, right, right after we do a music worship time together. And there's also, if you're signing kids up, there's some tacos there. So I can't imagine a worse time um, or, or the opposite, a better time than signing up kids for Awanas and tacos. I love tacos. I, so, I, man, I can't believe I mixed that one up. Um, other things to note. Um, what? Slow it down. Tacos are good. Okay. I've got it. All right. Other things to take note of is next Sunday. That's So that's 17th. After service, there's going to be a food truck festival at City Hall. And we just thought, hey, as a church, why don't we go and be a part of that? Have some food there. Bring your own chair. And we'll just kind of make a presence as First Baptist Church to be there and hopefully be able to build some relationships in the community. Another thing to note is that there's going to be a clipboard that I'm going to hand around here in just a second. And this is for the men's meeting. We call it Men Eat and Talk. Meet meeting. You get it? Men Eat and Talk. It's clever. Uh, trust me. So what's really awesome about it, though, is that men, we get to come and eat meat and talk. See, this isn't, this isn't rocket science, but it's awesome anyway. And so for that, what we're asking is if some people would be willing to help volunteer some of the food for that. Um, and if you don't mind just putting on there your, your information, what you would hope to serve, and uh, then people will know, then Corey will know, and we'll be able to get everything lined up for each of the times that we're meeting. And I highly encourage you men to go ahead and be a part of joining on that. That is going to be the last Thursday here. I'm going to pass this around. If you take a look at it and then pass it that way. If it makes it to the back, pass it over that way, pass it up that way. Um, men guys, this is an awesome time just to be together, to worship God together, to be with each other, and to be a fellow uh, brother in Christ with one another, to stand shoulder to shoulder. And so I just encourage you, there's not a, a you know, a right or wrong um, reason for coming. Just just come and be with each other. So with that, I, am, I, I promise you that I would invite you to stand up again. If you don't mind standing up again, let's go ahead and do that. And we're going to do today's memory verse. And so we're going to do this from Mark Chapter 9, verse 35. And he sat down yeah, and called, called the, the twelve. And he, he said to them, If, if anyone would be first, he must, must be last of all and, and servant of all. Of all. Mark, Mark 9, 35. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that we get to be here this morning and that we get to worship with each other. We thank you that we get to, to just give our hearts to you. We get to pour out with our voice, with our minds, with, a, with every part of the fabric of our being, God, and just glorify you, lift you up on the pedestal of our lives, and make you the most important thing that we look at or think about or put our, our heart into. God, you are amazing, and you see things different than we do, because we are limited, and we are broken, and we're so used to it, we see things upside down. So Jesus, as we come together today, as we are here today, we just pray that you would work something and that we would see the way things that you do, that we would see the first things as last and the last things as first. And so do that move in our hearts deep today. 
as you teach us, also help to make us bold to share that with the people that we know around us that haven't heard about you, who haven't accepted you. And Jesus, help us to love them where they're at, to love them so much that we can't help but be willing and bold in sharing your truth. God, we give this day to you for that purpose. And in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning, church. I always appreciate a good Sunday. I can pull my banjo out and play a little bit. And so that was awesome. Thank you, worship team. If you're new here, my name is Shane. I'm pastor, and I call it my joy to serve here at First Baptist. So thankful for the people here and the church here. If you've got a Bible, would you turn now to the book of Mark, to the book of Mark. And as you do, I've got a story for you. Some of you maybe have told you this story individually when I'm playing Frisbee with you. Um, but, but there was one day in my Frisbee golfing career that lives in infamy. And I uh, was playing in a, in a tournament, a Frisbee golf tournament. And I shot my first hole. If you know about Frisbee golf, you throw these, these Frisbees, and it's kind of like golf. you got to land in this basket. And my first hole, I shot in hole-in-one. First time I'd ever done that in my entire Frisbee golfing career. Yeah, can I get a woo-hoo? Like, yeah, okay, thank you. That's my ego. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And so then I kept playing, and about hole five, I threw the disc, and you know what happened? I did it again. Hole in one. My first two were in my first game. So can you imagine how victorious I felt in this moment? It was like, I have now accomplished something I have never done before, and I've done it twice in one game, and I'm playing in the middle of this tournament. And I got really excited and really confident about what I was doing, and I got to hole nine. And at hole nine, there was this big football field, and it was full of people while we were playing. But to have a really good shot at, at this basket, I had to throw over this field and hit this basket. Or I could, I could throw the safe way, and I could throw away from these people, but it would probably gain me another stroke. Well, I was feeling pretty good about myself this day. This day, I was feeling pretty confident. And so I stepped up to the tee, and, and I just threw that thing as hard as I could. And as it left my hand, it just felt all wrong. And I'll just remember, like, you know, slow motion moments in your life? where you're just like, no, and you're like, come back to me. It left my hand, and it darted towards the field full of people. And I just remember there was this gal sitting and watching the, the I think it was soccer or football on the field. She was just sitting cross-legged, and it just came up to the side of her. She didn't even know it was coming. It just hit her in the face. And so that was the best, worst game of Frisbee golf I had ever played because in that moment I had sent a young gal to the hospital. I felt terrible, terrible, terrible. But in that moment I had felt so good and so confident about my victory and how great I was. I soon regretted that attitude very quickly. We're going to read about a passage in Mark today where the disciples are feeling pretty great. They're feeling pretty great about themselves. And then Jesus is going to ask about their greatness, and they're going to shrink. They're not going to feel so excited about their greatness. And so with that, uh, let's turn then Mark 9, 
We're going to be verse, verses 33 to 39. We've been going through the book of Mark. We're in chapters 8 through 10. We're calling it Kingdom Contrast. After the, the disciples, Peter stands up and says, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Jesus doubles down and becomes very urgent because they begin walking to Jerusalem where he knows he is going to give his life on the cross and pay the price for humanity's sin. And so he's walking to Jerusalem, and he begins to get really urgent, really intense with the disciples because he knows his time is short with them, and he needs them to understand the difference between kingdom-mindedness, heavenly-mindedness, and earthly-mindedness. And that's for us, kingdom contrasts. How is our worldly thinking different from heavenly thinking. And so let's read, starting in verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, <laughs> they're caught, are you ready? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Anybody ever have that argument with somebody before? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest at what? You know, I think it helps when I've, when I've read through this passage, it helps me to understand that these are basically junior high boys. Can I get an amen to that? So what we know about the disciples is basically at this point, like the oldest disciple would have been about 23. The youngest disciple could have been John, who was probably the age between 12 and 15. So the youngest disciple really was a junior high boy. And so they're sitting and they're arguing, and you can imagine, it just, you get this picture of these young, go young guys talking about who is the greatest, who's the best at this, who's, who's the most devoted to Jesus, and they're really arguing between one another. And you get that picture, verse 35, and he sat down and he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so we want to talk about this mindset that we fall into just like the disciples. We fall into this self-promotional mindset where we're constantly asking, am I getting what I want, what I need? Anybody ever struggle with that? Everybody's hand should raise. Like, who thinks about themselves first in any conversation? When we talk about yummy snacks at the end of church or at a potluck, what are you thinking? I hope I get one of Carol's brownies, right? Like, you're thinking, how do I get the one that I want? And you're thinking, how do, I, how do I put myself first? And so this idea of self-promotional mindset that our culture really propagates in us, doesn't it? It really wants us to think about ourselves. All of the commercials that you see are bent on what? You serving people? No. Right? Every commercial that's presenting to you like the best shampoo in the world, who do they want you thinking about? They want you thinking about yourself, and then they want a part of that, right? So this self-promotional mindset is ingrained in us. It's modeled by our celebrity culture too, isn't it? Right? We, we have uh, in our culture the people who set the norms for our society. It's so interesting to me that uh, when you have a celebrity come on a commercial, they're all of a sudden the professional in any topic they're speaking about, right? They act, but now they're really good at politics, too, and they can tell us how to run the country, right? That, that acting skill really pulls into the other one, doesn't it? 
No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But there's this sense that this greatness, that if we're a celebrity, if we have fame, then we have influence. In these, in, so in these days, uh, they didn't have, if you think about celebrities, influencers, influencers, the internet, but we, they were still riddled with this rat race thinking. You guys ever, there was a movie, it was kind of a funny movie a few years ago, it was this movie called Rat Race. And it was about all of these people that had a self-promotional mindset. And what did they do? All they wanted to do was win this race. And so what did they do? They tried to defeat one another in really goofy and silly ways, right? They're like trying to put the stick in the spoke of each other's bike. And by the end of the story, like they're all so beaten and battered that nobody is able to win the race except for um, some accidental guy, right? Well, I think a lot of us are encouraged to walk through life like that, where we're going to bite and devour one another and try to make sure that each other fails so that we can win. And it is exhausting. Anybody exhausted by the rat race? Anybody tired? Be like, yeah, the rat race is exhausting. Biting and devouring one another only seems to end in defeat, even for me. You ever been a part of a team where... There's that one guy that just wants to stand out. He's the ball hog. We got a couple of soccer players in here, right? There's that one person that that tends to be a little more arrogant and wants the ball more than anybody else because he thinks he's better than everybody else. It's exhausting maintaining that, advocating for yourself. So Jesus is introducing then to the disciples this idea of building the kingdom and not ourselves. You guys ever heard when Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? right? Does that mean invest in yourself now? No, it typically means sacrifice what is good for you for what? For the kingdom, for the kingdom, for the kingdom. And so this idea that we need to be building the kingdom, it all emerges in what this thing, so what we see the disciples guilty of, we relate to, is this thing Timothy Keller calls the ego. Everybody say that with me, ego, ego. And Timothy Keller calls it uh, the ego. And here's, here's a, uh, the late Timothy Keller on the ego. The ego often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated People sometimes say their feelings are hurt, but our feelings can't be hurt. It is our ego that hurts. My sense of self, my identity, our feelings are fine. It's my ego that hurts. Do we live in a culture that we're easily offended in, right? So there's that sense that there's a part of us that is hurting. And so we are trying to come out on top because to fill the hurt, ego seeks to compare to feel better. Anybody get caught in the comparison trap? You're like, well, I'm doing pretty good compared to dot, dot, dot in life. Anybody do that? Where you're constantly comparing yourself. That's how our ego tries to fill that hurt, tries to feel better, and we become critical of one another. And by the way, a critical person is an ego unleashed. C.S. Lewis, I found this great quote from C.S. Lewis, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next person. Did you hear that? 
pride? It's like, have you ever accomplished something and it just doesn't feel like it's enough? You ever noticed, even in our athletics, as football fires up, right? There's always another Super Bowl. There's always another team. There's always another year. It's like the victories are never enough. You ever tried to watch uh, any of the football players that are really big stars, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady? Do they really struggle retiring and leaving the game? Why do you think that is? Because it's their identity. It's their pride. It's their ego. They may have Super Bowl rings, but it's still not, not enough not enough. And so the disciples are displaying this aspect of themselves, and Jesus catches on to it, and he wants to make sure to illustrate the importance of departing from this mindset where we're constantly worried about what we're getting, constantly worried about our status, constantly worried about how people are looking at us. And he says that we need to be last of all and servant of all. He says this multiple times in the gospel. You ever heard this phrase? The first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. So there's this heavenly mindset that we develop. When we meet Jesus, he begins to help us do this thing called forgetting myself. I love, uh, again, to quote Timothy Keller, there's this great little book. A lot of my thoughts are going to come from this book because it changed my life. It's called The Freedom of self-forgetfulness. Write that down. There's a book. It's a short book. It's a small read. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And this idea that, that when we walk in Christ, what happens? When we walk with Jesus, what happens? We begin to think less about ourselves, and we begin to think about who? We begin to think about Jesus more right? And so we get in this sense that, that we begin to forget ourselves, and that's what a Christian ought to be in the process of doing, is forgetting ourselves and thinking of Christ, thinking on Him. See, in the gospel, we have already been promoted to son or daughter of God. Now, I've got a question for you. Is there any status that is greater than son or daughter of God? Nothing in this earth can offer you a status like son or daughter of God. That's been given to you, not because of what you've done, but because you trust and believe in Jesus. That's the essence of the gospel. And so why would Christians have to fight for our place in the world? We've already been given a place in heaven. And so there's this assurance of walking with Jesus that we are now, we, are, we don't get offended. We can't be hurt. Our ego doesn't matter anymore because we have an identity in Jesus which cannot be taken away from us. A Christian does and, and should not have insecurity. Anybody insecure? Anybody struggle with that aspect of yourself? How many of you in that moment of insecurity need to remind yourself of what Jesus spoke over you? In that moment, you need to, and this needs to become a mantra for us as a church, in that moment where that rage monster ego says, I'm offended, we need to remember what? That we're a son and a daughter of God. We're a son and a daughter of the Most High King. There's no reason to fight to maintain our ego. Freedom of self-forgetfulness, it means that we become so focused on God and His people that we become free from the rat race making sure we get ours. We become people at peace. Let's look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives 
one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so the first way that Jesus wants to illustrate this idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven is he turns to this child, this little kid, this little boy. And here we need to understand that the context that Jesus is inviting this little guy into is very different from the world that we know. Children are celebrated, and and we love to, to, in fact, there's a whole industry in our culture that's about kids stuff, and kids oftentimes influence the culture. But in Rome, in the context, historical context of Jesus is teaching the disciples, kids were seen as a pain. Really, they were thrown away, thrown to the side, and the idea was children were viewed as a, as a nuisance in the Roman world. Death was so common, we would lose children so much uh, that, that there was an attachment issue. And so moms, in order to protect themselves, dads, in order to protect themselves, would kind of, we would, they would wait until the kids were adults until they knew that they were going to be with them forever. Can you imagine? Because death was such a prominent thing. So you think about, um, by the way, Christians did what Jesus is trying to teach to the disciples, and they began to serve the orphans of their culture. And you know what happened in the early church? They exploded in population because every kid that was thrown away by the culture was adopted by who? The Christians. And within 500 years, there was such a population of kids that had been adopted and brought into the family of Christ and cared for and loved for that the whole society changed. The whole culture changed. All because the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. You need to understand how powerful, how powerful this concept is. It can change our entire world if we get this right. And so the early church got it. When Jesus here is teaching the disciples, he's talking about a radical investment in the young, which is difficult. How many of you have a hard time sometimes being in the room with littles and they're loud and they kick you in the shins sometimes, and they throw up on you sometimes. It's messy stuff, and it teaches you this idea of putting yourself last, right? Doesn't it? I always joke that my, my wife and I uh, had talked about marriage, and we're like, you know, marriage was the, the, the greatest sanctifier that God put us in our life. We really got to learn to die to one another. Well, that was a breeze. When we became parents, we really started to learn what it meant to die to self, because there's these four little beings now that it doesn't matter what I want, I have to keep them alive. And so it means like, I want a sandwich really bad, but when they're screaming at me that they're hungry, I got to do them first. Man, that idea of the first shall be last, but God calls his church to be a church that lifts up a child, lifts up the young. We're talking about a radical investment in the younger generations. That was Jesus's heart here. I want to take it to the church today and just ask the question, you know what a real tragedy in the church would be? If you got your style of music your whole life, but never saw young people engaged with the gospel. That's why we're all about all different forms of worship and praise of Jesus, no matter the genre. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's going to be quiet. But when we are trying to engage the next generation It's going to mean sacrifice of our preference 
so that we can elevate and engage younger generations, not compromise. We're talking sacrificing our preferences, not sacrificing the truth. But let's be honest, there's a lot about church that's all about what? Our preferences. So when we can let go of those and engage a young generation, we become a church that's being faithful to what God is calling us in, in this passage in particular, that we welcome, everybody say that with me, welcome the younger generations, okay? Church, that means that there's no age of retirement where you stop investing in the young. And that can look in a lot of different ways, but you don't ever retire from investing in the young. By the way, Retirement isn't in Scripture, but you think about it, you think about it like this. If we spend our whole lives trying to obtain this idea of retirement, what are we forgetting? Who's retirement for? A lot of our, our society markets it to us, doesn't it? But here, I, I had a friend of mine, I was having a conversation, and it just brought, came to my mind. I asked him, he says, you know, Shane, I'm really excited. I've been saving up for retirement, and I think I'm going to be able to retire at the age of 58. I said, that's amazing, man. He says, yeah. The cool part is I want to I be able to be financially solvent so I can spend the rest of my life after 58 investing in the church and not having to receive a salary. Boy, that would be a heavenly-minded retirement, wouldn't it? That would be a heavenly-minded retirement. How can I serve? How can I? Um, uh, another pastor friend of mine talked about the process of selling the bell choir bells. Anybody remember those? Those were like super important. And, and he was new at this church, and he, he uh, explained that he wanted to sell the bells so he could buy electric guitars. And you can imagine how that was a no-no, right? You don't touch the, the bell choir. And this, little, this lady came in, and she began to talk with the pastor, saying, you can't get rid of these bells. But he said, they've been collecting dust for multiple years. And you know what? There's a generation. There's a generation that we can reach with what was put into these bells. In electric guitars, whatever it is, we can engage a new generation in new different ways with the gospel. Because engaging the next generation in church life is crucial to the life of the church, amen? We're talking, again, a radical investment in the young. Let's talk about the young for a minute. So we have labels for the different generations. Anybody heard of this Gen, Gen Z? Gen Z. There's now emerging Gen Alpha. They're sixth graders. This year is Gen Alpha. And they think differently. Would you agree? The world they're growing up in is very different from the world we all grew up in. How many of you grew up with a supercomputer in your pocket? Very few of us. So this is a big social experiment. Kids have access to 100% of the human knowledge and, by the way, human depravity in their pocket, and now they have to have the maturity to sift through that. So we got this generation that's coming up. And by the way, here's the, here's the cool thing. Let me give you, so that's one of the things that they're facing. But one of the things that, that we need to know about them is their strengths, not just what's before them, not just their weaknesses. Do you find yourself complaining about young people? Stop it. I was a millennial. There was no generation that had been trashed as bad as millennials. You know how many times I got told how, like, lazy I was just because I was a millennial? I was like, man, I'll outwork anybody, you know? So it's like, um, there's, there's a little bit of uh, ego there. Um, but Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they're the most global generation that's ever existed on the planet. 
What do I mean by that? Young people's experience on this earth today is similar across the globe because they have access to similar technologies across the globe. And so what do we see in the missions field? I talked to a couple of my mission friends and they're telling me that Gen Z and Gen Alpha are able to reach into, shut off sometimes Islam, Islamic countries that have been closed off for years and years and years. Gen Z and Gen Alpha are able to make relationships with people in there and where they're having revivals in what have been closed off Islamic countries. You know why? Because Gen Z could sit down and play a video game across the globe and share the gospel with somebody from the other side of the globe on a video game. And there's revivals. God is using that to awaken. So, so is the younger generations worth the investment? Yes. The movement of God to the following generations is going to be on them. That's who he has chosen to move the gospel throughout history. And so is it a good, yeah, it's worth selling every bell choir to see them saved and missionalized for the sake of the kingdom. That means some sacrifice on our part. I'll tell you, even as a millennial, some of the Gen Z music I'm not into. But you know what? I don't care. If it has the gospel in it and it points to Jesus, I'm all about it. I may hate it. But if it means that they're singing the gospel, I'm into it. I might put my... my uh, earplugs in and bob my head. But here's the thing. We, brothers and sisters, need to be sacrificing for the next generations because that's what Jesus said. Lifting up a child is like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. With that, here's a reminder. What can I do, Shane? I have a really hard time relating to young people. Start here. Start praying. We're going to have in a few weeks, the end of the month, there's this thing called see you at the pole. You guys ever heard of that ministry? That's where we, it's been a dying ministry because there's not a lot of people praying for the younger generations or at least visibly praying for them. And so it's been a dying ministry. I want to I call us as a church to revive that ministry because we want to be a people that pray and lift up the younger generations. Grade school, junior high, high school, college. I want to be praying for you guys. I want to be praying let us as a church come around that this radical investment just starts with prayer, doesn't it? Some of the greatest movements and generations in the history of Christianity has come from like five or six people praying for their generation. So what can we do? How do we take an active interest in a child or youth's walk with Jesus? How do we take an active interest in a child or youth's walk with Jesus? I want to ask you, Who's your one? Who's your one? This is concept that we invest in others, and it starts with one. Is there one youth child in this church, in this community, that you can just say, I am going to be all about advocating for their relationship with Jesus, whether they're a believer or not. I am just going to beat the drum of their relationship with Jesus. I'm going to ask them. I'm going to give them a Bible. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to be desperate for them to know Jesus. I'm going to invest in them as they grow older. I'm going to, I'm going to be there at the birthday parties. I'm going to be there at the football games because I love them in Jesus' name. Sometimes ministry of presence. You need to hear the statistic here, brothers and sisters. Um, as, a, as a college pastor, I looked at some of them. Barna did this study. And stats tell us that one consistent trait of college students that maintain faith after leaving home 
was that they had at least five believing adults that took an active interest in their faith. At least five believing adults other, other than their parents. I want you to think about that. That's a radical call for all of us to invest in the young. Because it takes five mentors to pour into a student to solidify their faith. It's not one to five. It's five adults to one student that shores up their faith. I can tell you who my five were when I went into college. I can tell you who my five mentors were that invested, and their highest concern with me was my faith, my relationship with Jesus, and they told me so. So we advocate, we mentor, we come alongside. We come alongside. Mentoring means you spend time with, come with me. This is what Jesus did with a ragtag group of young teenagers. That's what he did. He spent two years of his ministry primarily with a bunch of young guys. And those young guys went on to change the world. What would, be, what would happen if we took his method of ministry? What if we did it like Jesus did it? And we invest in a group of young junior hires. It means we equip. It means we equip. We, it means money. It means time. It means support their Jesus adventures. Things like camp. What if instead of just sending kids to camp, we went with them to camp? What if we prayed for their time at camp? What if, what if we took them on missions with us? We see that happen. Actually, that's one of the most profound things we do in the summer, isn't it? How many of you have been on the mission trip or seen the missions trip with Alan and his ministry? A few, you can raise your hand. Yeah, a few of you. And it's a life-changing experience, isn't it? When you live on mission, it's something you can't forget. And it changes you from the inside out. What if we were adults that were like, we want to create as many missional experiences for our youth during their time with us so they can catch fire of what Jesus is doing among the nations. What if we became a people that did that? We support their Jesus adventures and we pray for them. In a little bit in this passage um, that we're going to go over a little bit more in detail next week, Jesus talks about causing a little one to stumble. And he talks about this idea that um, for us today, it can be as simple as celebrating everything in somebody's life except for Jesus. I want you to hear that. Causing a little one to stumble can be as easy as celebrating everything in their life except for Jesus. I want you to think about parents. I, I used to do these parent-pastor conferences with parents. And they'd be like, well, I just don't know what's going on, Shane. And I'd ask them, when's the last time you asked your child, your kid, how they're doing with Jesus? And they say, well, now that you think about it, I haven't asked. I haven't ever asked. Or, and then I would say, when's the last time you asked them about their grades? How often have you asked them about how well they did at the football game? How loudly did you cheer for them at the basketball court? What does that communicate to our kids? They see you lose your mind at a football game, but it's kind of an option if they want to go to church or not, because it's kind of boring. You see, we have accidentally caused a generation to stumble because we've been so much more concerned with their performance than their relationship with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't make it about our performance. He knew our performance was never going to win us heaven or put us in heaven, or make us right with God. He knew that it was by grace and relationship with him that we would be saved. Brothers and sisters, we need to be more about relationship with Jesus as the highest priority. And it means we need to communicate that to our kids. I try to tell my kids, look, I don't want you to get bad grades, all right? I'm not saying grades are bad. 
But I'm saying I care so much more about your relationship with Jesus than I care. You can get an F the rest of your life. And if you have relation with relation with Jesus and you walk with him every day of your life, I'm going to say yes and amen every step of that journey. Because to me, the most important part of you is your relationship with Jesus and your eternity with him. What if that was our highest priority? Church has never been about trying to get people to behave better. We got to stop that because it's ruining the younger generations. They're walking away from church because we've made it about looking good instead of about walking in relationship with Jesus. Dads are especially important in this area. And we have a fatherless generation growing up. Statistics say that more kids are without dads than ever before in the last hundred years. Dads, we need to be elevating our kids' relationship with Jesus. And if you're here and you don't have kids and you're a guy, did you know you can adopt them as your own and advocate and invest in their relationship? How many, we have mentors. You can be a mentor. Just invest. Do something to tell kids how important their walk is with Jesus. And by the way, here's the principle of first shall be last and the last shall be first. You ever tried to do this? And I think I've done this before. Actually, Lucas, can I use you as an example? This is my, a, a good friend of mine, Lucas. And uh, Lucas, I'll just have you stand right down there. Okay, so Lucas, turn around. So the thing about discipleship, right, is if you're trying to stand over people and pull them up to you, I want you to just don't step up much. Just I'm going to try to pull you up. It's a lot harder to pull somebody up from, uh, from standing over them, isn't it? Now, I want you to see the difference. Lucas, I want you to just step on my knee. Go ahead and step up on that stage. Still hard, but easier because I got down to lift him up. Does it mean something for us, church? We got to bring ourselves down to lift the next generation up. Thank you, Lucas. Told you you're going to regret sitting in the front. Just kidding. So we have this highest purpose of the church is growing the young, a radical investment. And then he continues on. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his salvation. If you're an underliner, I want you to underline, for who is not against us is for us, is for us. And so he leaves this concept, this heavenly thinking concept. Investing in the young is his first example. And the second example about the first shall be last and the last shall be first is this idea of competition. This idea of, Lord, look, there's people over there, and they're, they're doing stuff, and it doesn't include me. Is that insecurity? Is that ego? Church, sometimes I wonder if we have more of a reputation for what we're against than what we're for. What if we became a church that celebrated God's work in every church and every believer in town? What if we celebrated? Because he clearly says, if somebody does it in my name, they're not against us. So why do we keep working as if we're against somebody? We think of, uh, I think of Jesus, right? When he was on the cross, what did he say from the cross? 
one of his seven phrases was, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so this idea uh, of us working against one another is completely abolished by this idea that Jesus said, even if it hurts me, if they're working in Christ or if it hinders something that I'm doing, I'm not going to get upset, but I'm going to cheer them on because I must decrease while he increases in others. I must decrease while he increases in others. We walk in lifting and not punishing or tripping others. That's the rat race. Christians, we ought not do that. Instead of spending so much time on criticizing other believers, what if we worked towards Christ and cheered them on towards walking with him? I think of other ministries and other churches. We want to be, partner, we want to be a partnering church with any who are furthering the miracle of the gospel. Amen? And look, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I grew up Baptist. I love Baptists. But Baptists, we don't got it right all the time. And there's a sense that it doesn't say the world, worldwide church of Baptists. That's Jesus's church. And sometimes it takes on many different faces that we need to be praying and asking him, who do we support? Who do we walk alongside? And who do we get out of the way of? We need to stop the comparison trap that's fueled by the ego. We live in an interesting culture because we have to compare ourselves to the entire world. I think about us as a church, right? And how many of you can think of a church that has a mega church following or a big podcast or a televangelist? And you look at them and you just kind of get discouraged because you're like, we're not them. You ever felt that? I, I've had people sometimes even compare my preaching. I've been told, if only you were a little bit more like Charles Stanley. Hey, I love Charles Stanley's ministry. I'm Shane Rosty. God made me to preach to you from what he has given me, not what he gave Charles Stanley. We live in a celebrity culture where we're constantly comparing ourselves. We got to stop doing that. By the way, you guys know the Christian books that we all read. There's this interesting influence in all, and I do a pastor's book reading every Thursday with a group of pastors in town. Every book that's published now, typically in Christianity, comes from a mega church pastor. You ever put that together? You know why? Because publishing companies get more money when they elevate a, a pastor of a mega church. So whose ideas flourish more than anybody else's? Mega church pastors. And we've seen how that gone over, right? How many megachurch pastors have walked uh, their ministry into shame because of moral failure or what have you? We have to be a church that is faithful to what God has entrusted us. We can't be in the comparison game. It's not about what they're doing. And so this idea that, that we need to be supporting others but not comparing ourselves to the other ministries. We need to ask, what is right for God's movement in us here at First Baptist in Riverton, Wyoming? What does God want from us as a church? And the last thing that, that we see in that passage is this idea of receiving help offers others a chance at heavenly reward. Why do we not compete instead of work with one another? Because we stand to gain when we receive help from other believers and other ministries, and other churches. Did you guys say amen to that? Man, I think of a great ministry like Set Free Ministry. I think of a great church like Cornerstone or Mountain Alliance. I'm so grateful for my brothers across this town that we can work with them. There are ministries that we need to get behind. I, I'm trying to remember of the Pregnancy Crisis Ministry. Abba's House. 
Um, we used to call it legacy, but the care net type um, ministries. I'm so thankful that they advocate for life. Those are ministries that we want to partner with. Gideons. My Gideons aren't here today. Well, maybe Ozzy's here, right? We want to partner with a ministry that gives the word of God to people. We want to be about supporting them. So what, what does that mean for us, church? It means that we need to become a servant of all. We need to invest in the young. And we need to stop policing the church and start working with it and start working with it. I'm going to have Carol come up, and she's going to play a little bit. Um, and I just want to give us a time of response. I want to ask, uh, let's go before the Lord and ask him, what does this mean for us? Because we know ultimately who is the greatest servant of all. Jesus. He started by washing the disciples' feet, and then he finished it by getting on that cross and paying the price for their sin and our sin. He was a servant of all, and it cost him. Is it going to cost us? Yes. Is it worth it? Yeah. Let me pray for us. Let's just have a time of response. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you'd move in and among us. Holy Spirit, pray that you'd convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, because we know, we know, we know that you gave us sonship and daughtership in you, Lord. So there's nothing for us to defend ourselves in. We already have it all. What more could we need, Lord? We know and confess that nothing, nothing, nothing do we need more than walk in relationship with you. Father, give us, uh, give us the ability to invest in the young. I pray that in many years' time, we could look out in this church and see many, many, many young families and younger generations. And I pray that the seats would be full, Lord, of college students, of high school students, of junior high students. I pray, Lord, that we would invest young because it's worth it, Lord. Please equip us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.